So five minutes, huh? Oh my gosh! Wow, the five I, minutes. I was I I planned very well, and then uh, and then uh, there there's uh, obstacles in between uh, my car and my office. Uh, people, people uh-huh. you had to talk yep. to. Yep, yep, yep. People are the worst. <laughs> oh, they are. But that's okay. It. Uh, um, I also uh, don't. My my display doesn't have any any power. And I think I think it's because of the hurricane. <laughs> I huh. think so. So everything else has power, just not well, your display. Well, no, I think nothing has power. But I have internet, and I have a uh, a computer that has a battery backup. But I'm going to try and figure this out uh, while we're while we're talking. So, so uh, you should you should keep an eye on on your power and we should talk quick because uh, this might be uh, this might be a short episode. Are you fully charged? If I, I'm fully charged. I got 99. I got 99 uh, problems but power ain't one. Uh, <laughs> Wait, where's my bell? Hold on, hold on. <laughs> Wait, say that again. I got 99 problems and power ain't one. Yeah, we'll fix we'll fix that in post. Oh, we will. All right, I'm, I'm under my desk trying to find <laughs> My power is plugged in. I'm gonna. Uh, what has happened to the show? I can hear you. Uh, oh, I found. I. You know what it is. I got it. I got it, Don. I think. All right. We got that. Get that, please. Uh, there we go. There we go. I got power. I got power. So one of the, one of the things that uh, that happens. I know you're not in a hurricane state, and I am. Oh, please talk to me about Superstorm <laughs> Sandy. Oh my gosh! Yes, um, switch audio display now. Okay, um, I am. Uh, so, so we we the university's been closed uh, since Wednesday at five. And so they they say things like uh, they. I mean, the powers that be, the university uh, folks say, uh, leave your office, don't come back. Everything's locked. It's unsafe. Um, and then uh, unplug things from the wall in case we get power surges. That includes uh, apparently because uh, I, I did not I don't I don't ever do that uh, because I don't have any I have like a, a, a like a power bar that is plugged in that has a surge protector on it uh, but I think that people um, walk around and unplug things just in case sure just in case just in case in ca- so I uh, and and then I expected all to work and then I come up and it, w- it didn't work so then I found that it was unplugged and now that's how we are here well see here's the thing Ben I think the people that like to walk around and unplug things uh, mm-hmm. they should also consider it their responsibility to walk <laughs> around and replug things before you come back because you know <laughs> <laughs> yes yes that's so true it's so true because that we wouldn't run into the things like I just ran into which is um, trying to do a podcast on a, on just a very small 13 inch display instead of a 27 inch uh, display. Uh, they don't they don't know what they don't know my workflow, right? Right, Don. Well, I'm just saying if you unplug it, you should plug it. That's that's plug. that should be the rule. I mean, it just seems to make sense, right? Yeah, you you, you know you open it, you, you close it. it, you break it, you buy it. Your mother <laughs> does not it. work here. <laughs> you plug it back in. Unplug it. Plug it back in. Oh man. <laughs> Uh, so, so Don, this has been, I, I'm, I'm going to, I, I'm going to jump into things cause it's been, it's been kind of insane. Um, and I think it's not, I'll, I'll tell you why it's been a little bit, uh, crazy pants around here. So, so obviously, um, for those who are listening who live in the United States, you probably have heard, and even those who have not, we, 
are um, experiencing a major hurricane, the aftermath of a major hurricane, Hurricane Florence, in North Carolina. And I live about two hours away from Wilmington, North Carolina, which is the town that has, as of now, been cut off from civilization uh, due to flooding and down trees and power outages. And um, no one can drive in or out of the city or fly or take a boat, apparently, which is odd. I just don't understand the the navigation uh, aspect of things because there's a lot of water. It seems like you should be able to take a boat, but there's that would like seem like the only thing that you could take would be a boat, right? Right. Uh, but but according to the news reports that I saw this morning, um, there's like uh, an estimated 110,000 people that are there that have no like you know no no civilization. Uh, it's it's Lord of the Flies. Um, and I've heard, I've heard that it's uh, when you're surrounded by water, it's it's very hard um, to get to get help. I've, yeah, I've right, heard that. Right. I've heard that said. <laughs> yeah. Very, very, very smart people are saying that. <laughs> Inaccessible islands. It's, uh, um, so, so one, you know, one of the things that, um, that I, I try to do it, and, and you and I have talked about this. We talked last year about, um, hurricane Harvey. I think it was, that was the one in Houston, um, and hurricane Matthew a few years ago that also came through North Carolina had a lot of flooding. Um, as part of a, an extension food safety specialist responsibility, um, and not, you know, not just like, Hey, this is your job, but it's something that I'm passionate about. It's like getting people information around food safety. And now we're at like day five refrigerators are, are unlikely to be holding 41 degrees in, in 80 degree weather, um, after five days. And so we get a we're getting, um, questions that are that are coming in in different forms about what what should people do um and so we th- this time around um i have there's sort of a team of folks that we mobilized um early on like a week ago on uh creating a whole bunch of resources printed and then stuff that was formatted for social media and then monitoring social media and really targeting um, people that are talking about the hurricane, like like act- actively searching for people who are like, I don't know what to do with stuff in my fridge or media folks that are covering it and then tweeting at them and posting on Facebook um, and really, um, r- really like, I guess, reactively in a sense, because we didn't do this, I mean, b- before power outage happen, but proactively instead of people coming to us to ask, like, like trying to get this information out in non-traditional ways. And, um, now we're, we're running into a situation which is kind of like, we don't, this is part of the reason why I was a little bit delayed. Um, we can't get to people because there's no power. There's no internet. There's no cell phone coverage landlines. We're trying to call radio stations today with like, Hey, we, you know, producers, you know, so-and-so if, if you've got questions about food safety and you're on the air, um, if you want to have somebody, uh, as, as an expert on the air to talk about it, we're here. Um, now like we're, so we're calling radio stations and the, the, they're out of service. There's no, there's no phones. Um, and so it's like a, a, I don't know, I don't like this. It's uh, it, it's a tricky, scary situation where we've kind of kind of done everything that you can, um, and then now we just hope to that 
you know, that people have either gotten out or they're just making, um, you know, decisions like when in doubt, throw it out kind of stuff. Um, and it's, and that's just from the food safety side of things. Like there's all these other safety issues, right. Then flooding and, um, electrocution and stuff that, that I'm not, that neither of us are, are experts in. Yeah. Hold on. Um, oh, can you hear me now? I can, I can. Oh, Jesus. I, you know, the Skype, you're on. Uh, you know, it's uh, the Skype interface is not intuitive. Apparently, um, if you have, you need the white microphone not crossed out. Um, right, right, that's a yeah, little yeah. bit uh, colorist. Um, yeah, and <laughs> so anyway, I I muted my microphone because I was doing some moving around and changing the height of my desk and sitting on my my um, yoga ball, um, and uh, and then I for- forgot how to make it uh, not uh, not be muted. So anyway, um, all right, so uh, I had something to say, something important to say. Oh, so we should say that you you were, you are safe, your family is safe. Yeah, I didn't see yeah, you mark yourself safe on Facebook, but I, no, I don't, you I know. Don't do <laughs> Opsec, Don, I don't, I don't. And, and in the, the place where you live, let's say it rhymes with, Schmally. Sh- yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, the, the hurricane went around that, uh, rel- sort of around that. And but obviously, you have you know your your job is helping the people of the state of North Carolina. And there are some parts of the state of North Carolina that are some so obviously have been hit pretty badly. Oh, and the other thing I wanted to say too is that I was following you on social media. I don't know if you know that I follow you on social media, I, and <laughs> and uh, you were retweeting some stuff. Um, obviously, trying to get people ready for this. I, I did see that you made some comments on the the um, life hacker trick of putting a quarter on top of a frozen container of water, a frozen cup of water. Um, you know, but but yeah, you kind of at this point you sort of feel like okay, well, I'm here. I'm ready to go let me right. let me help you let me help you make your food safe um and and if people are just you know cut off from you because there's no landlines or um cell phone lines cell phone uh connection or apparently boats or whatever boats. right there's no there's yeah. no way to get a message to you um although you're there and ready to help and obviously there are, i mean the people that are most dramatically affected are the least able to to contact you so but have you so have you been yeah. doing much um i mean and obviously it was a weekend too and so i guess there's a per- perception that maybe you know people like you are not there to help on the weekend although of course i know you're always trying to be available well so what's the is it just crickets out there i mean what's the a, a little bit yeah, yeah so i mean I, I recorded a couple of interviews late last week and and had a few exchanges of email with, with some media folks, but, uh, this is, um, it's, it's different than the cycle of like what happens in an outbreak because most of the, most of the media coverage and the stuff that people wanted to talk about late last week was it, how big is this going to be, right? Like the uncertainty of the weather pattern and not like, okay, let's plan for if your power goes out, um, you know, too, too much. It was more of like, destruction kind of things. And I think now we're, we're probably in an area where at least in, in my local market, there's more of like, okay, so your power's been out for a little bit and it's been on and off. Let's talk about things. But the places where it's most affected there, there's just nothing like there's just no. Um, so like Jacksonville, North Carolina is where a place that I did some, some media, uh, work with late last week there, uh, you know, no, no, they've got no service. There's no, I, I don't even know if the, um, the radio station 
has been flooded or not. Like it just might not even be there. So maybe there's broadcasting from a tower, but it's like another, they're just like simulcasting um, radio from somewhere else uh, to get, to get information. I just don't, I mean, it is, it's one of those things where it's like, you just don't know. We don't even really have a, a, um, a good sense of where our extension offices are and employees are. We, we just know they're like, everything's, you know, everything's close. We can't even, um, so one of, one of my colleagues has family who lives in that area and, um, she kind of expressed today, she's like, I can't, like, I want to, they're a you know, elderly family. She's like, I want to go, but I can't like, there's, you just can't get there. There's no, um, like the interstate's closed. Um, so it's, it is very, um, I don't know, you, you have this like sense of helplessness and I think you categorized it exactly correctly. It's like, Hey, I'm, I'm ready. I'm here. These are the things that we, we know about and we talk about, but there's no, there's no one to, to facilitate that. And, and it's a weird, it's kind of a weird situation. You, there's a, a feeling of helplessness and, and I can't even imagine what the individuals who like the flood victims and the hurricane victims are like, right? Like that it's probably magnify that frustration by a million times because now you're on the inside and you can't get anything out or you're not getting anything from the outside in whatever. So it's uh, yeah, it's pretty, pretty bleak. Um, wow. So, so this was, I mean, you know, cause I was following the news as, as many of us were, and it seemed like, well, you know, it, uh, it, it, you know, it declined in intensity right before it hit. And again, mostly I was just like worried about you and your family. And, and, but obviously that was silly because there's people that I don't know that are in the rest of the state, some of whom were obviously very, very badly affected by this. So, um, yeah, I don't, uh, yeah, it's, that's yeah, a tough it's, situation. And, and, and there, I mean, because you're this food safety guy, it's kind of your job to help them, but but yeah, there's a I, I can imagine there's a real sense of powerlessness. There there is, and and I'll give you so, um, a friend of the friend of the podcast, friend of the show, um, Michelle Danilock, She and I have been texting a lot uh, over the last five or six days because she's a hurricane pro, right? Mm. Like this is this is her thing, and um, she mentioned something that I didn't really have a good sense of until we were in it because this is the first like major one that that's, that's come through Raleigh. She's like, the worst part is, is the anxiety related to the waiting. Cause you don't know when it's going to happen or even what's going to happen or if it's going to happen. So you think like, Oh, well this will be like, there's not much I can do. And, but there's a level of anxiety around that. That means you can't get your mind off of it. Like I just, all I did was consume weather news. Mm. Uh, for for four days. And oh, then, kind kind of kind of like how most people have been consuming the news since um, the election. <laughs> yes. Yeah, no, I mean, it, I think it's analogous. To yes, what else can do. It's a slow moving hurricane. Um, <laughs> you don't know how terrible it's going to be, but you know it'll be bad. All of that. Um, but yeah, I mean, there's there's this level of anxiety that comes with it that I had not really experienced, and and the more you the more uncertainty and the more you watch it, the more anxious uh, I became. Yeah, uh, for sure. And, and so my, my like outlet was, um, I just you know, jumped on Twitter and started either live tweeting my kids watching space balls or, um, tweet, you know, tweeting at people and trying to engage in conversations around food safety, just kind of to get 
like my my mind off of the whole thing. Well, or uh, and also maybe to sort of feel like you were doing something, right? Yeah. At least uh, you know I'm doing I'm doing something, right? Instead of yep. like sitting here nervously doing doing nothing or trying yeah trying to not think about it. So yeah, and you know, and one one uh, interesting point that you made um, was that um, you know you, the your kids are not in school because not because there's anything wrong with the school, but because evacuees are in the schools, right? Exactly. I mean yep. that I and mean, that's something that just never of course of course. Of course they are, but that but that that never even occurred to me that oh wow this is going to be this is obviously hugely disruptive to the people that are displaced. But guess what? It's also disruptive to everybody else who is doing their best to help the people who are displaced. So there's it's definitely not um, you know it's not not normal, right? I mean it's it's right it's, right it's, it's every every everything's turned upside down. And yeah, so there's um, you know people are displaced and they're in shelters and in high schools and, and in middle schools and then you know buses are routed because they're moving people and stuff and so the infrastructure you know that with the with our state government and that's you know where exactly where you and I lie is when things like this happen we I feel like we have the duty as and so do lots of other people have the duty to help as much as as we can um, as as state employees and that you know is exactly what's happening with some of our school systems, we're not like too far away from counties that don't have power at all. Like maybe 40 miles from, from areas that have a lot more, um, flooding from, from creeks and rivers. Um, and so even that it's, it's not even just like helping folks out that are in Wilmington, but, but like Johnson County, which is really close by one of, um, our area specialized agents, um, uh, her, she, she lives there and she like went and stayed with friends two hours away and is trying to manage like her, her house and uh, her neighbors. And then also like do food safety stuff at the same time, all from a place that is not, not home. Um, and so like that kind of stuff is, is, is crazy as well. But yeah, so, I mean, kids are home from school. Um, I, I don't know. I mean, my guess is they'll probably be home from school tomorrow as well. Even though our weather has has subsided, it's going to take some time uh, for some of these other communities to get um, to, for people to go back. Um, there are in Goldsboro, North Carolina, and in um, Smithfield or uh, in Fayetteville, um, two like two of our larger communities, east and south of Raleigh, um, are expecting like you know, thousand year flood records, um, in, in their rivers. And so like normal, I read something and I'll, I'll totally botch the exact numbers, but it was something staggering. Like the normal height of the river is nine feet and they're an expect, they're expecting it to crest tonight or tomorrow morning at 63 feet. Oh, so it's, geez. yeah, it's like, not like, you know, it's not like 20 feet, right? Like it's not like double you're, you're looking at an entire, like seven times, um, what it, what it would normally be. And so that, so, so even though the weather pattern has moved, uh, you know, even like, I mean, as we talk, I just saw, um, like a little bit of, of blue sky outside my, my window. Um, even so that that's kind of moved, you now have all this, like, well, where does all the water that's been dropped on the state goes? Um, and so we'll, you know, I, people talk about, uh, at least people here talk about hur- Hurricane Fran and Hurricane Floyd as the two sort of big ones that have th- that everyone who who lived in North Carolina remembers and and they survived that. And then this one is kind of like on par with that. Um, it's just a magnitude and how slow the system is moving. And um, and we're I mean truthfully extremely extremely lucky that personally we've had no 
Um, I mean, no effects. And I, I can say that in a, the most like obvious way, like our, our power went out for a total of four minutes. Um, we had two limbs fall down in our backyard that, that fell down on Wednesday night before even the winds hit. And I think they were just like, it wasn't even, it was just coincidental. Um, and so, but, but you don't have to go too far from my house to find like, you know, trees down and, um, you know, creeks rising and, and all that kind of stuff. So it's, yeah, it's a little bit, it's a little bit surreal and it's, and it's hard. I think on the outside, I didn't have a really good appreciation for how it affects all, everything that's going on. Right. Like it's, um, like one of my, um, one of my former uh, grad students, and I won't opsec her out, but um, she, uh, her wedding was planned this weekend here in Raleigh, and had family coming from out of state. And on Thursday morning, um, they made a decision to say, you know, we're gonna we're gonna reschedule the the ceremony, and 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 they still they still ended up getting married on on Saturday to uh, or not reschedule the reception. They still had their cer- the ceremony on. Uh, on Saturday, but that kind of stuff, like it, it touches so many different things that it is, it, it is hard to get back to like normal, like, you know, work quote, right? Like mm-hmm. our normal, our normal function. Yeah. I did see some very cute pictures on, on Facebook of people getting married in the rain and it was, it was delightful. So I'm, <laughs> I'm glad that they went ahead with, at least with the ceremony part. So. Yeah, absolutely. Um, So, so anyway, that's, that's what's going on, what's going on here. Um, and I, I'm a little, uh, you know, uh, uh, anxious, I guess is maybe the, the word. And it's not from a, it's not like a person, like a personal thing. Like I'm, and I, it's not about being anxious because I'm worried that something will happen. It's more like what, how, I, I, how do I, how can I, can, how can I help? How can I, what can I do to actually impact uh, people that are really, really affected by it. And the anxiety is like, why? Well, I, I don't know. I, I like, here's what I've done. I don't know if it's helping. I don't know what to, what to do next. Um, so, and, oh, I was, before we leave this, I wanted to say that, um, one of the, like, I started telling the story earlier, but one of the things that we've done differently, we have area specialized agents that focus on food safety and a couple other team members of, of mine that we like actively, for the first time, targeted people on social media and, and created a social media calendar on, okay, we're going to monitor for four hours at a time. We're going to look for stuff. We're going to plug, uh, push things out and try to engage people. Like all really trying to practice all the stuff that, um, that I've published about and written about in, in other ways. And, and it's kind of fascinating. I, I mean, this is without, this is just like anecdotal stuff, but some of our Facebook posts are in the hundreds of thousands of, um, impressions just by like boosting $20 and then directing people to it. And just like, these are little, um, all, all, all links. We'll, we'll, we'll put them up at our, um, disaster website that I've been, um, tweeting about, but we have some like little, uh, pictures that are formatted for Twitter and Instagram and, and Facebook. Um, and so those are the things that are getting shared and, and then, like you said, we, we talked a little bit about the, um, the uh, penny on the glass, you know, uh, penny on frozen, frozen cup trick and how it's not a fail safe. But, but the thing that one of our area specialized agents, um, came up with last week was, all right, we know that hard boiled eggs are a non TCS food. Well, what if we just put out there like, Hey, boil a bunch of eggs 
right now. And if you if you have them and keep them in the intact shell, that they're a good snack and protein source, and you don't need refrigeration for it. And that information has gotten shared all over the place. That's fantastic, um, and that's and that's a real practical science based bit of information uh, that, that that actually helps people. Because I mean, probably people have eggs in their in their fridge, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and it's like stuff like so. This is the first time that I really had a team as we're building this food safety information center to say okay, like a week ago, we got together and said, okay, let's plan for how we're going to do this. We have time. We know something big is going to happen. And this is our time to, to put all the tools that we have together and, and go out and do this. Um, and so we'll, uh, the, the hope is that, um, no, not the hope. What, what we will do is, is write this up as a case study for journal of extension or something, right. Um, going, going forward, but, but we'll, I, I'm, I'm really trying to track or our team is trying to track what, what outputs do we have and did it matter? Is this a good model? Like, is this something that, that can be used? Um, and can we get any, can we get any data on it? Um, yeah, well, so yeah, here's, here's what we did. Um, here's what seemed to work. Here's what didn't work. Um, here's maybe how we would do it differently the next time. And it doesn't have to be like, it can be, a story, right? It doesn't have to be right. like a quantitative, statistically significant. It was just more like, well, here's some things that we tried and, and here's some things that we thought would work and that didn't, or here's some things that we were unexpectedly helpful. Um, yeah. So that, so that people can learn because, because for sure we're going to have more hurricanes and for sure there should be people like you, you know, trying to find, you know, uh, new ways or different ways to engage with people when these things happen. Exactly. Exactly. And, and that were, um, I don't know. I like. I, I I hope to think that we're good at this one, right? Like this is this is something that's in in, in my my group's wheelhouse of like trying to figure this out. How? What is the best way to do this? What What can we do beforehand? Um, and then the story is like we're we're learning stuff like this. The, the whole idea about like. I, I I don't know. I just thought, well, we we'll get on a bunch of radio stations. If we're all ready, they'll they'll interview us. And it's like, well, but if we're the, what if the radio station's not there? Like, oh yeah, that's a good, that's a good point. <laughs> so, yeah, so, yeah. Um, so we're, yeah, we're, we're, we're trying and then, and then focusing on some of this stuff. Um, but it, it's fascinating like to see some of the, the Facebook shares and people that are reached and, and some of the things that work and some of the things that don't. And, um, you know, it, that, that kind of stuff is kind of, you know, kind of insane. Um, like I'm just scrolling through and some of these are like 11,000 people reached and with, uh, you know, 445, uh, shares and engagements. Um, so, you know, by putting stuff out there, we can get in their, in their feed. Hopefully they, they use it right. That, that they actually, that it means something. And then every once in a while, like, um, some of the stuff that we put out there, um, other people that have lots of followers retweeted or engaged with. Um, so it's, it, I mean, just shows that like ability to, to spread stuff really quickly. Um, and then, and, and, and with the hope that maybe, maybe someone's making a decision. So, uh, anyway, that's her, that's hurricane flow for you. That's, uh, um, and then we'll link to the disaster page that we have, which is go dot NCSU uh, edu slash Florence food safety. Cause we decided to like make, you know, capitalize on, on some, uh, alliteration for hashtags and stuff. Uh, and then revamp everything that we had. We, we had a, an extension agent who translated everything that we had also into Spanish. And, and so there's a bunch of, uh, uh, information up there. 
um, as well. And I will we'll link to that in show notes. Oh, awesome. Very good. So, yeah. So let's, um, if, so if, if you don't have anything else on, um, hurricanes, let's, let's move through listener feedback. Yes. Let's listen. Let's listen. Let's do that. Okay. So you listen and, and, and send me those links and, and I'll, I'll start and we'll go, we'll go, we'll, we'll work uh, reverse cron as they say. Um, we'll start with the oldest, uh, uh, I guess that'll be chronological, not reverse chronological. But uh, my my folder is sorted reverse chronological. But let's start at the bottom with the oldest feedback, and this is Sorry. from. <laughs> we started at the bottom. That's a Drake song. <laughs> okay. Now we're here. We started at the bottom. Now we're here, Don. Uh, okay. Uh, <laughs> I, that's um that's not a person or a musical genre I'm familiar with. So, but but uh, but I trust you. I, th- I think I have heard of Drake. Um, well, you know, I'm from Why You Got to Fight with Me at G's. Oh, of course, of course. <laughs> from some of his earlier hits. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> all right, all right, let's go. All right, um, so this uh, this says, uh, please uh, share all details freely. This is from uh, listener uh, Jason. He says, I received a text message from a friend who was making sausage at home to be smoked, and he said, don't worry, Jason, because he confuses me with a food safety expert. I added a uh, bleep ton of curing salt. Um, and his question is, does, does curing salt uh, significantly decrease bacterial load, and is bleep ton an actual measurement? Of course, um, this is, as I explained to Jason, this is a family podcast, so um, let's just say a poop ton uh, of, poop ton. Uh, of uh, curing salt. Um, and uh, so my, my response to, to Jason is that the main reason for adding curing salt is to produce the desired color, and uh, cure, uh, that is uh, nitrite, does control Clostridium botulinum. Um, it uh, it, as far I mean, it may have some effect on vegetative pathogens like Salmonella and E. coli, um, but that's just because you added a poop ton of curing salt does not mean that it makes it from unsafe uh, to safe. You have to obviously also cook the sausage. Um, and I would say too, um, we do know that if you use an excessive amount, perhaps as much as a, a poop ton, um, that that uh, sodium nitrite can also be dangerous to people. So I would I would suggest that if you are making sausage at home, that you use the appropriate amount of curing salt, um, and that Not you follow. Yeah, well, which which I mean, if it's if it's a if it's directions from a reputable source and they reference the poop ton and they they provide a, a poop ton measure, um, I think that that's perfectly fine. But Probably that's you're probably going to use less than that. So yeah, well, and I'm I'm just going to add two other things here and and uh, put a shout out to uh, Dana Hansen, my colleague at NC State, um, and I'll send you a couple of links for the show notes in a second, Don. But um, the other thing that that we know with curing salt, um, it, I mean, it it does a couple other things, and one is it helps with the drying process, and it also helps if if you're uh, dry fermenting sausage, it helps to select for the uh, lactose, you know, whatever your your um, your starter culture is that you're adding to it, it helps with that uh, by um, it, reducing the, some of the competitive uh, microorganisms. So it's so on its own, I, you know, absolutely, it's it's not doing stuff, but it's helping facilitate the other two things that you want to do with with dried or smoked or um, fermented sausages. Um, and, and so we do, um, we, we talk a lot about this in, um, in a, a workshop course that we do, uh, really right now across the country on, um, uh, HACCP plans and retail and variances to the food code. Um, and, and, and this is one of the ones that, that comes up sort of 
almost every time is uh, charcuterie and uh, smoked sausage and using cure. Um, you know, it's 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 uh, not allowed within the fo- food code to take the um, TCS food of of meat and make it a non TCS food shelf stable product. But um, it, it's one where you're you're 100 right. If you do it. If you overuse and put too much in from a poop ton, you have other toxicity issues. And so following um, either recipes that are out there, and there are some good ones for for consumers on – it depends on what they're curing. uh, But there's some stuff that University of Wisconsin has um, and uh, National Center for Home Food Preservation has on this. Uh, And so starting there from a consumer standpoint, but then also using uh, other – uh, validated recipes that are in the literature from a retail standpoint. Um, and I'll, we'll, we'll link to some of that stuff. Very good. Thank you. So while, uh, while you're, uh, finding things that you, you need to send me, I'm going to give you, cause we're moving in chronological order. I'm going to give you some more feedback or some more uh, work to do. Um, so this is <clears throat> from listener Dawn who says, uh, please share all details freely. Um, thank you so much for providing such an interesting, well-researched podcast on food safety. Wow. Thanks, Don. That's very nice of you. Um, uh, she says, I teach uh, family and consumer sciences, foods and nutrition. Uh, uh, thanks, Ben, for mentioning your work with family and consumer science teachers. Um, your support of our teachers is greatly appreciated. I've listened to the last 100 podcasts. Uh, sometimes the information causes me to fear cooking for others. No, no, don't, don't be afraid. Um, but I do try to put all of your suggestions into practice. Uh, ben has mentioned the food safety curriculum that he and his coworkers created for high school students. Could you send me information about how to access safe plates? I'm always eager to learn more about food safety and in- to encourage safe practices for my students. Um, yes. Uh, yeah. So. so, yeah. So, and I think I mentioned this in a, in a couple of podcasts ago, we're, we're launching this, uh, program, safe plates program nationally at the end of September at the national association for family and consumer sciences, uh, in San Antonio. I think that's the name of the, uh, or maybe the national extension association for family and consumer sciences. So anyway, Don, I'll, I'll send you, um, some information via email once that's all, um, sort of out there, uh, we, uh, we'll, we'll have a, a website and, um, information on, um, sort of becoming a trainer in, uh, in different spots and, and how we're going to roll that out. So it may not be like right away. Uh, we're planning on launching out of our state in the state of Virginia in early 2019 and then, um, looking for ways to get, uh, to get elsewhere. Uh, but, uh, be happy to, to share what we have, um, and uh, same goes for um, the family and consumer science curricula that that our uh, state uh, department of public instruction utilizes that that we design for uh, foods one and foods two classes in our high schools. So yeah, I'll be happy to share that on, and we'll um, I'll I'll definitely um, in a in a few more episodes talk more about that uh, and where people can find more information. Good. So, but in the meantime, uh, the information is not yet public, but um, you'll Correct. hear about it first here. Yep, you got it. Okay, awesome. So um, next bit of feedback. Uh, this is from Neil, who says, uh, share all details freely. Uh, he says, I'm partway through one episode 163, and your call for listeners to ask their everyday food safety questions has compelled me to write. And so that's what, that's what we wanted. Which what we wanted. Um, he says, uh, let's just say that some of the members of my household don't do a very good job at washing dishes, and this means that sometimes when I take a, uh, using Richard Fingers, uh, clean frying pan out to make scrambled eggs, I 
find there is still egg from the prior morning stuck around the bolts where the handle is affixed to the body of the pan. When I encounter this, I clean the pan myself before using due to the ick, again, Richard Finger's ick factor, but how would you two evaluate potential risk factors? Let's say that the egg remnants of the pan have been cooked thoroughly and the pan was left on the counter for 12 hours prior to being washed by hand in hot soapy water before being left in the draining board for another 12 hours. And so um, my, my take on this is that there is uh, surely there is an ick factor, um, which um, somehow um, my dictation software or my fingers uh, typed uh, ink factor. Ink fa- yeah, yeah, so it's not an ink factor. factor. There's no ink factor at all, but there's definitely an ick factor. <laughs> um, uh, so the residual eggs... Uh, that um, uh, so so any eggs that are left over from the day before are going to be cooked, right? Which means that if there's any vegetative organisms in those eggs, they're likely to be destroyed. Um, the cooking process makes uh, the eggs that that are left over quite dry, which means that if there were spore forming organisms that would survive the subsequent cooking, there probably is not going to be enough available water for the spores to germinate and grow. So it's clearly not a best practice. Uh, if you were a restaurant or a dining hall um, and you were being inspected by a restaurant inspector or by one of my graduate students, you would get marked off. Um, it's not uh, it's not a, a big deal um, in the grand scheme of things, but you know, it, it is it is a deficiency. Um, the other thing too that I want to mention is there's a paper that we published some time ago. Which looked at, uh, and so we had for we we have a program that it, that inspects Rutgers University dining halls. I've talked about it before on the podcast. Um, for many many years, we did a whole lot of surface sampling. <clears throat> in those dining halls. And we don't do that anymore. We switch to intensive temperature monitoring because I think that's probably more reflective of the risk than, than food debris but or, or of, of you know sampling surfaces. But one of the really, and this is the great thing about collecting a lot of data, is that you can see things that you, that kind of maybe in retrospect makes sense. Um, so we, we, we and I'll, we'll link this a paper from the mid '90s, but it's but I think it's still it's still I think a, a kind of an interesting piece of work. Um, so what we did was we we looked at all the surfaces we sampled, and then we looked at, at whether there was a comment. Uh, in the inspection form saying that when the surface was sampled, was there food debris? And then was there standing water or visible water? And then was there food debris and water on the surface? And what we discovered is if there were no comments, then um, there was sort of one level of quote unquote risk based on just total plate count measurement. But that if there was food debris, there was a a higher probability of finding a higher count of bacteria. If there was water, there was a still higher probability. And if there was food and water together, that had the highest probability of having an elevated level of microorganisms. So I would say, again, you can kind of use those those data as, as a metric. And so, again... You know, back to the listener's question about uh, about the ick factor. If it's food debris, there's a risk. If it's if it's food debris and it's like a pan with eggs in it, um, where the eggs are sitting in some water because the, the pan didn't get properly dried, that's going to be a higher risk. But again, overall, I would say relatively low risk. Any yeah, any I, any any uh, feedback or comments? No, no. I mean, I, this is. Uh, this is exactly Neil, uh, exactly what we were looking for from uh, from this request, and uh, it's one we have a terrible 
pots in my family that were passed down from my parents. Like I think I took them to college when I moved out 20 years ago that are Circulon pots that I only boil water in. But um, my my wife, uh, the lovely Danielle, who who does not listen to the show, um, demands on making scrambled eggs in them. And because they have like really like record player style grooves in them, they I, I am constantly trying to remove the uh, ick factor of built up egg in it. Um, and and it's like I, I'm I experience that that ick almost weekly. Uh, from, from these, but, but I, I agree with you hundred percent, Don, that the, the risk and, and just sort of going through that, that step of, uh, vegetative cells killed, anything that might've been added would be added afterwards. And then another kill step on top, uh, to me, uh, you know, pretty, I would say really, really unlikely to have any toxin, um, uh, growth or, or formation, uh, not toxin formation and growth of toxin producing, uh, 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 pathogens, uh, that, that it's not one that I worry about, um, from a food safety standpoint, but I, I don't, I don't want to use the circulon pots for anything anymore myself. So I understand. Okay. Well, that's, that is, uh, that is, that is cool. And I've just, and you talked just long enough that I found the, uh, the citation. Um, oh, and I would, I, I, oh, I apologize for not having my ducks in a row on this. There is a kind of pot that, or a kind of pan that we have been using. And I don't remember if I got it on Amazon or not. I will, I will find it retroactively and link to it. Um, but it is a, so we got we got one that had one of these um, anti-stick surfaces, and it it's just started getting grooves in it, and it started getting stuff to stick. And so this is a this is it's sort of like the analogous of a of cast iron, but it's not cast iron, and it, and it it does require seasoning, and you can't use soap on it. But we have a little a little pan that I have now started using for making eggs in the morning, and it's it's fantastic. And also to the listeners point it doesn't have bolt it's 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 welded on the bottom with the handle and so it doesn't have any bolts that can get food debris around it on the on the cooking surface so it's really it's really nice and i i i i I really love cooking on it um and we should get some more of them the the one downside is it's kind of on the heavy side but it's a really nice it's a really nice pot to use so I'll, I'll, i'll find uh uh information on that and i'll put it into the show notes afterwards sweet sweet um, okay, moving on to uh, listener feedback. This is another um, awesome one that came from uh, our everyday life questions. Uh, so this is uh, from someone who said, uh, read the message, but not my name. Um, so I we are going to uh, name this listener uh, Deep Money. Um, <laughs> and Deep Money says, I instantly thought of an everyday life comment concern that I wanted to share. Um, and then at the end of the episode, my concern was touched on with double glove comments. I was in Panera recently that had one guy behind the counter doing everything. It wasn't crowded. I asked for a bagel and cream cheese. He put on gloves, grabbed a bagel, and then a customer went to the register with a coffee and asked to pay for it. The Panera worker walked over to the register wearing the gloves, took the money for the coffee, rang it up, and gave the guy his change, and then walked back while continuing to work on, continued working on my bagel, all without changing his gloves. Ack. Uh, yes. I stopped him and asked if he would please give me a new bagel and please change his gloves and then explain that money might be one of the filthiest things we encounter on a regular basis Um, and that gloves are uh, meant to protect me from things like filthy money. 
in, in Harvard Square, I went with a friend to Ben and Jerry's, and the kids working there were wearing gloves, taking money, and then going back to scooping ice cream without changing gloves. Ack! Uh, from this, I walked away without saying anything and without getting any ice cream. I see this a lot in various places, people handling food and handling money and then handling food and not changing gloves. It makes me wonder if there's pressure from management about gloves being expensive or perhaps it's poor training. I don't get it because it's a cinch to change gloves and I wonder why it's not happening when it should. Um, and as always love the podcast. Thanks. Uh, deep money. Okay. So this one, we got, we got stuff on this. Um, so I'm going to, I'm going to take my, my stab at it and then I'm going to let you, uh, you, you responded to, to deep money. And so you can talk about, um, your response, but this is, uh, what, what, uh, what deep money described is something that we see, um, quite a bit in, in not just in, uh, quick service, uh, situations, but where, where I've encountered it the most is the work that we've done in, um, farmers markets. And uh, a farmer's market situation, uh, very almost uh, not exclusively, but uh, much of the time you have one individual who is handling food um, and maybe like uh, putting stuff on the display, fresh produce, and then handling money and then maybe bagging it um, all not anywhere close to a hand washing facility for the most part. Um, and it's one that um, – that came up as, as we, we did some work, uh, a few years ago that was, um, one of those, one of those situations, Don, where we never published the stuff and then a book chapter came up and then I published it in the book chapter. Um, and so it was in a book chapter of a book, um, that, uh, Judy Harrison and Renee Boyer edited on farmer's market food safety. And I'm going to find a link to that for us. Um, but we did a chapter on, um, uh, food safety at, from a vendor perspective, not like production, but like managing a farmer's market and food safety, um, in, in that situation. And, um, I, we, w one of my former graduate students, uh, Allison Sane, um, she, uh, created a, that's one of my favorite Davy Bowie albums. It is. Allison, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, nicely done. Um, uh, she uh, created a a, a a secret shopper study where we uh, trained uh, extension agents and other people to go out and uh, view food handling practices at farmers market vendors and markets across the state uh, in two and then create an intervention and then go ahead and uh, apply that intervention and then see if we could change some of the practices. And one of the things we this was um, funded by, a group in North Carolina that um, called the Tobacco Trust Fund, and they are charged with um, taking former tobacco production, uh, tobacco producers and tobacco production areas and changing them to specialty crops and other things that are more profitable. And we worked with our Department of Agriculture, who has the responsibility to regulate farmers markets. So that's all the background. This exact question came up a whole bunch of times. And it's one of those ones where, it, and it comes back to um, uh, um, you know, uh, our previous uh, question about ick factor and ink factor. There, how much of handling money and then going to food is ick factor, and how much of it is risk, and in a consumer perception um, side of things, and where we kind of aired on. Not I didn't air it on. We where we kind of went was 
best practices, you shouldn't touch money and then touch food. Um, from a risk standpoint, um, while uh, you, it's very, and, and we'll link to some of this in show notes, it's, it's easy to recover bacteria from money um, and from you know paper bills and especially bills that are older, um, you'll recover more. It's not really easy to to recover foodborne pathogens, and and so it's kind of like the the mantra of, of what you and I have talked about a lot in the past, which is if we look for bacteria everywhere, if we're going to find it everywhere, and we're going to find lots of it. But is it bacteria that make us sick? And and in this case, uh, it, it's pretty. It, there's not a lot of data that shows that it that it is, and so to sort of change um, or. <sighs> you know, be really, really harsh on something like this as opposed to hand washing after using the restroom. If I had to like prioritize things, I would much rather people wash their hands after a restroom than after handling money. That's not to say it's zero risk. It's just really, really low risk. So what are your, what are your thoughts? Yes, I, I absolutely agree. Oh, and by the way, the, um, the pan, um, is it's French and it's called Matfer. Borgiat, and we will we will link uh, to the website, and they make a bunch of different kinds of stuff. But I think uh, I think the kind that we got is is called black steel, which is not to be confused with blue steel, which is a, which is a completely different thing. Um, so um, yeah, so uh, yeah, so I basically uh, net net, I come down uh, same place with you on this money issue. Um, we'll put in the show notes um, a, a a really nice paper from twenty ten. It was published in Foodborne Pathogens and Disease, which is an, a quantitative look at bacteria on money around the world. And basically, they found uh, differences between different currencies. But more importantly, they showed that, that really what seems to drive the level of microorganisms on money has to do with the age of the banknote as well as the number of times or the number of folds in the note, uh, both which correlate positively with bacterial concentration, as you might expect. expect. Um, uh, Barry Michaels, who did uh, a bunch of hand-washing research back in the day, uh, had a short editorial from 2012, which we will link to, and then um, we'll also link to a paper from Mike Doyle's lab, um, which where he inoculated pathogens onto money and, and looked at the die-off over time. And then finally, I want to say... Although uh, I don't have anything to share at this point, uh, I did have a, a student who needed a topic for an essay uh, for basically for some extra credit work, and we had originally settled on you know the mundane topic of uh, pathogenic E. coli and fresh produce, which has been done to death. And I said, hey, um, now I know you haven't gotten too far down the road on this, but how about if you do a comprehensive literature review on bacteria on money? Because uh, I think that there's probably a, a need for a nice uh, review on that. There's tons of papers on it. Um, and again, this very nice 2010 study, but but I think it would be useful. And and honestly, also is the kind of thing that, based on the work that we're doing now with the uh, agent-based modeling uh, for uh, bacteria viruses on the hands of berry pickers and stuff, uh, it, you could do a nice little uh, quantitative risk assessment looking at actual risk of transfer for the ki- exactly the kind of ser- scenarios that uh, Deep Money talks about um, in her uh, in her her uh, question to us. So yeah, so bottom line is not a best practice low risk but probably not um, you know not not likely to cause uh, uh, illness maybe maybe the occasional sporadic illness but I think it's unlikely so yeah so well, thanks and, thanks for that question yeah and one, one thing I'll add here is that um, it's a 
if you see someone who's doing this and you don't want to eat that food, then do exactly what Deep Money did. Exactly. Right? Like, that's exactly like, the right thing to do. Yeah, just say like that's that's gross. Um, and, and and it's I I feel like this is one of the ones where it's not it's low risk and they're not they're not making people sick kind of by accident, right? Like it's it's not a best practice, but it's also not something that is going to transfer. Um, human pathogens too much, but they don't like they meaning the food handlers or even the folks that are creating the standard operating procedures probably aren't looking at it the exact same way that we are right. Like they're the, they're, someone's either skipping the standard operating procedure here, which says it, you know, doesn't call, uh, money out specifically, but says, you know, you should be washing your hands in between touching things that might be contaminated. Um, and then someone's food it's, it's more of like, yeah, it's, it's gross. And, and just, if you don't want it, if you don't eat it, don't eat it. And, yep. and and go elsewhere. Yeah, and you sh- and you shouldn't if if you know and 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 she the listener did exactly the right thing, and it sounds like the food service operation also if they responded to her request also did the right thing. So yeah, you shouldn't. You, it, it's 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 not appropriate, and it, and people shouldn't do it. So. Yep. Yep. All right. So um, we've got a uh, another um, story: uh, everyday food safety. Uh, and this one is from share all details freely is, uh, from listener Ian, uh, Ian writes, uh, Hey guys, love the show. I was doing some pre bed tasks tonight and enjoying the new episode when you made, uh, your re- made a request for everyday food safety questions at the time I was repotting <laughs> some plants in my kitchen sink. As you so do. Seemed, yeah. It seemed like a good source for questions. One, is there any reason I shouldn't do plant related tasks like replacing potting soil in my kitchen sink Two, aside from rinsing any excess dirt down the drain. Is there any major cleaning I should be doing afterwards? And three, if I'm using commercial potting soils or anything I could really do to put myself at risk. And that's, uh, from Ian from, from Philly and, uh, Ian, even though you said share all free details freely, we will, uh, give you a nickname of, uh, deep soil, <laughs> <laughs> deep soil in Philly. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, we your response was let's we don't know of any research, but let's let's speculate on this, and so let's let's go let's walk through this this one a little bit. So, I would look at my sink um, as a relatively dirty, potentially contaminated spot because of all the food related things that I'm doing around that sink anyway, right? Like, um, it's a place where I start if I'm handling any. Uh, raw meats or anything that might be contaminated that I'm rinsing it down the drain. It's a, it's a place that I don't do. I don't use my sink very much for meal preparation. Um, you know, even if I'm, um, if I'm rinsing or washing any fresh produce, I'm doing that in a colander or, uh, some sort of a strainer. So it's not directly touching it. And I'm treating my sink almost all the time. Like it's fairly contaminated. It's part of my post kitchen cleanup process, which my, uh, the lovely Danielle, my wife reminds me that I am really, uh, quite messy when it comes to the kitchen, but I also do a pretty good job on cleanup. So I make a lot of mess, but I clean up a lot of mess. Uh, my, my sink, I, I treat it always with a post, um, uh, like after I do the dishes, after I, the last thing I do in my, in my kitchen is, uh, a spray of either chlorine or a quad based sanitizer in the sink to control anything that might be there. I don't see potting soil as any different than if I was to, um, the risk that I might be introducing from raw meat 
in a sink. Right? Yeah, and so, in fact, I would guess that the risks from raw meat are higher than the risks from potting soil, right? Absolutely. Um, the only thing that's going to be in potting soil more than in um, raw meat would be spore-forming organisms. We know that the soil is a great place to find Bacillus anthracis and Clostridium botulinum spores, um, where meat, you're more likely to find vegetative pathogens. But the bottom line is, I think, as I think you said it, is that your sink is not a food contact surface, right? You should not be preparing foods in your sink. Um, you, you would prepare them on a cutting board, which is on a countertop. So that's, you know, several um, layers away from, from, from the sink. And of course, when you're done, um, you sanitize the cutting board and you sanitize the countertop. And of course, you sanitize the sink. And again, from what we know about food processing plants, I would say that probably, and we also know from research from people like uh, Chuck Gerba, is that your kitchen sink, the drain in your kitchen sink is, is a very likely source for all sorts of nasty microorganisms. So that's where you're going to find find the bacteria. Adding a little bit of extra from potting soil is you know low low risk. Yeah, yeah, ab- absolutely. Um, and um, keep keep potting. Keep keep your plant. I, I like your. I like the description of uh, plant related activities near the sink. <laughs> um, all right, moving moving on. Um, we've got. Uh, Another uh, listener feedback from uh, listener Daryl G says, uh, uh, share all details freely. Um, Message is, a month ago, I became very ill for a day and a half with foodborne illness-like symptoms, diarrhea, vomit, fever. It cleared quickly and was not severe enough to make me go to the hospital. I did talk to my primary care doctor, and he agreed it was likely a foodborne illness. I've tried to figure out what I ate or what I cooked that might have caused the illness, but I cannot think of anything specific that also wasn't consumed by several others when I cooked or at a chain restaurant that I've been to many times. What tips or suggestions do you have for narrowing down where the illness may have come from? Uh, was it something I, if it was something I prepared, I'd like to figure that out so I can fix any risks with the foods, the safety of my food preparation. Uh, thanks. And I really enjoy the podcast, even the non-food safety parts. Um, so go, you, I'll, I'll throw this to you, um, uh, to, to start on. Yeah. So this is a really, really good question. And the answer is that this is, these are always tough issues to, to figure out. And sometimes even experts don't know. Um, for example, I, uh, I got really sick, uh, in Turkey a few years ago and I could, the most closest thing I could narrow it down was something that I bought in the airport in Germany. I had, uh, on my way to Istanbul, uh, I had a salad and I had some, uh, cured, uh, meat sticks like pepperoni style meat sticks. And, uh, I, I think it was probably those, those meat sticks. Um, the, we have to look at uh, not only the, the foods, but we have to look at the symptoms. Um, and uh, the um, uh, listener says uh, the symptoms included um, uh, fever, uh, which means that it's probably not an intoxication. So it's not staphylococcal food poisoning or bacillus um, food poisoning from the emetic toxin. Um, and what that does is it says that it's not the foods that you ate relatively recently. So if you experience uh, vomiting but no fever, it's probably a toxin former like staph or bacillus, and it's probably a food that you ate relatively recently versus a food that's causing intestinal distress, that's causing vomiting and diarrhea and fever. Um, and if, if so, since there's no, since there is fever involved, that pushes the incubation period 24, 48, or even 72 hours before uh, the onset of symptoms. Um, 
and speculating. Uh, the uh, listener Daryl does not tell us uh, whether uh, what he what the foods were that he was considering. Uh, but um, if, if he if he's preparing raw chicken, uh, maybe he cross contaminated. Um, so that's a possibility. Um, it, it, he, uh, I think he's right to uh, exclude the chain restaurant, but again, depending upon the nature of the problem, um, you know, there might be a small number of illnesses which went unreported to to local public health. We know that there was a Chipotle recently that made a whole bunch of people sick from bacillus, uh, which or from Clostridium perfringens, which was probably in uh, beans that were te- black beans that were temperature uh, mishandled. Um, also, uh, he, as he writes to us, uh, he says in his in his uh, email, he says, a month ago, I became very sick for a day and a half. So my question is, like, I mean, and, and you know, obviously, he, when he was sick, he maybe did this thinking and not, not a, 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 a month ago. But if you are linked to an outbreak and the epidemiologists come calling, it's very difficult to think about what you ate a month ago, much less what you had for breakfast yesterday or the day before. Um, I, I do a pretty good job of remembering what I had to eat today. And I might even be able to reconcile what I ate yesterday, but don't, I mean, I can tell you for sure what I ate a month ago, but that's only because I'm logging, uh, I'm logging calories in this app. If if it was requiring, if you were depending on my memory, um, I I could not tell you what I ate. So, um, so it's possible that you're forgetting something. Um, but of course, you know, we're going to assume that, um, you, you're, because you, because you listened to the podcast and because you remember that when you were sick that you probably did this mental analysis a month ago and then filed it away um, so we're going to we're going to trust trust your recollection in this case but but it's it's tricky right it's really tricky to remember so that's that's my that's my two cents on the topic yeah no and the only thing that that I'll add is um, and we'll link to a barf blog article that I wrote a while ago about an, um, an illness that I had almost a decade ago, a Campylobacter, where you know a, a similar situation. I, I had some terrible symptoms, uh, went, to, went to the doctor, took a while to get even a confirmation uh, that it was uh, that it was something that was you know a foodborne illness pathogen. And then the public health um, detective work started both by me and by local public health. And it was kind of like, okay, what were all the foods that you were exposed to in a, you know, two week window back, uh, you know, 26 days ago. And that's, that, that's one of the, um, one, one of the issues that we have. One thing that I will add, um, to your, uh, comments, Don, is that he, and another, situation here that we might be finding is maybe it's not foodborne and maybe there's a an element of norovirus um, here in person to person or just environmental where where you have these one-off cases and this is why we have you know 48 million cases of foodborne illness a year and, and half of them we don't even know what it is uh, is that we're we're often exposed to to things that lead to these symptoms and it looks like a one-off sporadic case and and no one will ever will ever know and it may be that um, that your food handling practices are, are a okay, right? Like, the, yep. and there's nothing that you, that you could have done. It was, uh, on a, on a doorknob somewhere, um, that, that then got transferred, uh, to, you know, to your mouth or, or something in, in, in another way as you were you know, scratching your mouth or, or doing whatever. Um, and, and that's, that is the, um, you know, one of the hardest parts of what, what we do. And it, and it just like this, this anecdote goes to show how lucky we are and lucky might not even be the right word, but how, um, 
when an outbreak does get identified, it shows how many things have to fall into place, right? You got to have multiple people with the same illnesses, with the same symptoms that all have some other connection, whether it's geography or whatever to, um, you know, or a connection to a product. And in the similar type of time frame, they've all got to go and report it and get it confirmed. Like it's, it, it's amazing that we find any illnesses. Um, and it's amazing that we don't find more. Yeah, well, and you know, one of the things that I, I keep putting into show notes that we keep uh, not talking about is the uh, multi-state outbreak of Cyclospora linked to Del Monte vegetable trays. But FDA declared on September sixth uh, that the outbreak is over, um, and we still don't know the cause. Right? FDA, as it says, and we'll link to the to the FDA webpage. It says FDA evaluated and reviewed the distribution and supplier information for each component of the recalled vegetable trays as part of the traceback investigation. The investigation did not identify a single source or point of, of contamination for any of the items that compromise the recalled vegetable trays. The traceback investigation is complete. So in other words, we're done um, and we don't know. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I'm going to skip just because it connects to this story. Mm-hmm. I'm going to skip to another bit of feedback to something that we talked about in uh, episode uh, 163 about um, the uh, individual who came up and talked to me about her son's uh, salmonella illness. And so two, two pieces of feedback. So even, even if, um, if, if Daryl, uh, had information like a confirmed illness that still doesn't help us always get to the source. And so we talked about a person who, uh, who I knew who had, uh, um, her son had salmonella and, uh, it was laboratory confirmed. And then what she wanted to know was to follow up on, of source and just wasn't getting anywhere within our public health system. And so we talked about it and one of our listeners, um, for, uh, for OPSEC reasons said, you can read my message, but not my name. Um, and then, uh, we're going to call him, uh, uh, call this person deep FOIA. Um, it says, uh, in episode 163, Ben talks about trying to get specific inf- in- info on an individual's illness from CDC. I completely understand his and his friend's frustration. My advice is to sub- submit a freedom of information act request to FOIA. This is how lawyers, um, uh, uh, Marler submits us all the time, get info for lawsuits, but we also receive them from prisoners written on napkins. We have to respond either way. Of course, the process may not be fast. She'll need to talk to the public health lab and get whatever info she can, patient ID, specimen ID. Sometimes the isolate was submitted to CDC reference lab. Patient's name can be used to find the info. I hope that helps. Um, and then another an email that I, I received offline that I'll paraphrase because it did not come through through our normal channels because I was doing some other um, emailing around this. Um, and this uh, this came from uh, someone in our state who does uh, public health uh, investigations said um, the person should reach out to the local health department. Um, all salmonella events are investigated by local health department in the county of residence. They would probably have the ill person um, complete a form and provide photo ID verifying their identity so they can re- receive a copy of their investigation record. Um, and the record should include the laboratory result, and then they could use that information to go to CDC um, for more information. So, um, and, and so just um, I, I had forwarded some information. <laughs> about this because I just forwarded an email and uh, just like a a really interesting part of this is the person who responded to me said, for confidentiality purposes, i.e. HIPAA regulations, I've removed the case's name and any identifying information from our email chain. So that like right there 
um, as well as something that I hadn't thought about in this whole discussion, right, is um, that we also have to be really uh, protective about individuals' uh, pr- public, publicly available information and private information re- regarded, regarding to ha- regarding health, right? That just me doing some noodling on this and pushing it around could be something that now goes into the public record that down the road an insurance company can can look at and say, oh, well, this person, you know, here we have this piece of information that we got somewhere else that this person had a pre-existing case of salmonella that may be one of the reasons why we won't cover them for something else. Like all that kind of stuff, right? Like now now you've got um, stuff that that isn't protected by by HIPAA um, in, in these communications that, that made me like take pause about how I, even I was trying to chase this down for the individual. Yeah. And, and, and all, and, and yes, absolutely. And, and, you know, the other thing too, which, which is kind of implied in the, in the message about, um, uh, getting stuff from prisoners written on napkins is that our government colleagues take these FOIA requests very seriously. Like they, they have to do it and, and they yeah. have to, they, they have, they have to follow the law and there's HIPAA regulations and all of that. But this is like some, some serious business. And I'm really, I'm just glad we have public servants out there who just take their jobs like so, so seriously. Like this is, this is important stuff. And also this reminds me of like, you know, people have that, like it used to be at the bottom of their email, they'd always have stuff like, please um, don't print this email message out to save trees. (laughs) And I would always like look at that and I would like laugh because of course I'm not going to print it out. I would never print out an email message, but then, but now the thing to have at the bottom of your email is don't, if you're not the selected intended recipient, please delete this email. Don't forward it, blah, blah, blah. And that, that, stuff I do all the time. Right, right, right. <laughs> Forward those messages all the time because that's how we do communication these days. And it's and I probably should again, to your point, I probably should be a little more circumspect about that. Well, and and here's like the, yeah, there's some other fun stuff like just thinking about this uh that email that I'm talking about at the end of that email, instead of the don't print it to save trees, it says all email correspondence to and from this address is subject to the North Carolina public records laws defined by, you know, this statute, which may result in monitoring and disclosure to third parties, including law enforcement and the media. Right. So it's, I mean, it's right there. Like Mm -hmm. just, just as a reminder, everything that you and I are talking about is public and that, you know, there may be some protections, but let's just assume that it's all public. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Uh, so, uh, okay. So moving. So anyway, I jumped, I jumped forward, uh, to connect those two, but yep. I want to go back to one on, uh, pasteurizing eggs. Yes. So this, so, so this oh, yeah. is, yeah, go ahead. I was good. I was just going to set it up. You got a, a tweet that, that someone, uh, um, Adam Gadge, uh, a, uh, uh, under, uh, at guy Gadge, uh, tweeted at you, uh, last week said, uh, any podcast episode you can recommend about pasteurizing eggs. Some say 57 Celsius for 75 minutes. Some say 60 Celsius for 12 minutes. Any insights? And you went, you went to town and you got, you went and got some good stuff. I like yeah. this. Yeah. Data. Um, so, um, so basically, um, this is a, a really good question. And so if to, to, to pasteurize eggs, the, f- the first thing I've got to figure out is what, uh, what should I use for a D value and a Z value? And we've talked about what D value and Z value are before. Uh, D value is the decimal reduction time. That is the amount of time necessary to cause a one log reduction in the concentration of microorganisms. And the Z value tells you how the D value changes as a function of temperature. So what's the temperature 
change in degrees to cause a one log change in the D value. And so, um, again, you can, you can Google these, the definitions on Wikipedia are pretty good. Um, so I needed to start with a source for D values and Z values. Um, and basically I, I ended up at a paper, um, from, uh, Dick Whiting and Bob Buchanan published in 1997. And this is actually a kind of a really cool, interesting paper because it's the first example, uh, that I know of, of a quantitative microbial risk assessment with food. And it was because, uh, at the time, uh, you know, Bob was on the the cutting. Bob and Dick were both have both been on the cutting edge of modeling stuff, and of course, the predictive modeling led right into quantitative microbial risk assessment with foods. And so, this this paper from 1997 is a pasteurized egg risk assessment. But it's a I knew I knew that it would be a great source because because to do that risk assessment, they'd have to have D values and Z values for eggs. And so, basically, in that manuscript, they use they have a an equation which basically describes uh, the uh, D value as a function of temperature. And so that gives me uh, the ability to basically plug that in and do calculations. And so um, one of the um, screenshots that I have, I just, again, you can plug stuff into Excel. You can make an equation which basically predicts the, uh, the, the log of the D value in seconds, which is the output of their equation as a function of temperature. I can take the anti-log of that and that will give me the D value in seconds. I can convert seconds to minutes because we're talking about um, time depending on the temperature, we're talking about uh, time periods that are on, on the order of minutes. And then uh, then you've got to decide, once you have that D value, you've got to decide, well, what's the appropriate D, what's the appropriate decimal reductions to constitute pasteurization? Is it 5D? Is it 7D? And so for purposes of my uh, estimation, I assumed 7D, which is, you know, two, two logs more than 5D, so 100-fold uh, more, more safe uh, than that. And then uh, let's come back to the two temperatures suggested by the listener, which I put in, in bold in, in, the, in my uh, 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 spreadsheet screen capture. And so basically, um, it's 21.5 minutes at 57 or 2.8 minutes at 60, which differ, uh, differs from his numbers of three minutes at 60 and two, 22 minutes at 57, but not, not significantly. Close. If you round up, yeah. um, if you round up, oh wait, so sorry, I rounded up. Uh, those are my roundups. Sorry. So, so oh, my, yeah, those yeah, are sorry. my, his numbers, <laughs> sorry, his numbers are, um, 75 minutes at 57 versus my uh, 22 minutes and his 12 minutes versus my three minutes. Now, of course, what my analysis assumes is that you start measuring when the egg gets to that temperature. Of course... You're never going to do that in real life. What you're going to do is you're going to set your your sous vide machine or your your water bath to whatever temperature. You're going to put the eggs in, and then the eggs are going to heat up, and then at some point they're going to reach the target temperature, and then at that point you start timing. And so you might need to uh, break a few eggs, uh, pun intended, um, to to figure out uh, what to do with this recipe. But but basically, I, I would say um, probably his numbers are are fine. Um, because my numbers don't include come up or cool down time, uh, whereas his numbers probably do include uh, come up time. And so I would say if you are going to, and of course the only ways to, to I mean, I'm assuming this is somebody who is who is going to be sous vide uh, their eggs and pasteurizing them 
I'm, I'm guessing because this, I mean, why, why else would you be doing this? Um, and so I would say just do some tests where you take some eggs in the refrigerator, you put them into your sous vide water bath, and then just collect some data. You've got a t- I'm assuming if you're going to do this in your series and you're listening to this podcast, you've got a tip sensitive digital thermometer. Um, so collect a little bit of data, right? And, and so uh, figure out uh, what it would take. I would, I would stand by my numbers of once the temperature of the egg reaches 57, you can go for 21 uh, Point five or round up to say twenty two minutes. Once your egg gets to sixty degrees, uh, go for three minutes. Um, uh, but you, but you've got to figure out that come up time depending upon um, the temperature of the eggs, how many eggs you're putting in the water bath, what's the size of your water bath, et cetera, et cetera. So that's probably way more than anybody wanted to know. But that's how I would solve the problem. Yeah, yeah. I am. Uh, I just sent you a link to a really amazing document that the. British Columbia Center for Disease Control put together on sous vide at retail that I've been using and sending out to people that talks oh, about cool. thickness and equilibrium uh, a little bit. And there's some references in there um, to uh, papers that talk about how long it will take to equilibrate um, a uh, a um, an egg. So, uh, and it might it's it's quick it's it's relatively quick at those at those temperatures. Okay, good to know. Um, yeah, so there's wow. some some stuff in there uh, because it's I mean. Uh, a pretty good surface area for the size of the uh, of the product, and and it's liquid, so it it, it ends up. Uh, it's not. Um, it conducts the heat pretty well. Cool. It's better the, than than meat. And the, oh, that's good to know. Um, so the the title of the document is Guidelines for Restaurant Sous Vide Cooking Safety in British Columbia. Uh, the good news is the bacteria don't care whether they're in British Columbia <laughs> or somewhere else. So uh, you know, again, uh, uh, there are obviously you got, what you've got to differentiate is between what the, what's the science and what's the regulatory policy. But this looks like a fantastic document, and it's uh, freely available on the web. So thanks, uh, thanks, uh, British Columbia. It is, and they also to put in a, a uh, like a, a a plug for them. Um, they have a really, really fantastic uh, document on uh, acidifying rice for sushi as well, um, and uh, and I'm going to link to something else uh, here uh, that I just found that I haven't even read yet from <laughs> also from uh, 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 folks at the. Um, uh, BC Center for Disease Control, Lorraine McIntyre, who is, I don't know if she's a friend of the podcast, but she is a friend of mine who I've met <laughs> on numerous occasions. Uh, an article called Sous Vide Style Cooking Practices Linked to Salmonella and Teritidis Illnesses. Nice. Um, and this was linked to uh, uh, impl- uh, uh, sous vide eggs in, in 2015. Wow. So, awesome. Um, so take a look at this as well for more info. Very cool. And the, uh, yeah, so uh, I have to say props to BC Center for uh, disease control, even though they spell center incorrectly, um, <laughs> they have a sous vide working group um, membership list that includes you know a couple dozen people, and this is people from regulatory uh, uh, agencies as well as people from the industry. Um, oh, and and also a special acknowledgement to uh, our, our our friend, not maybe not friend of the pod, but our friend uh, Pete Snyder. <laughs> Yep. Um, who apparently helped with this uh, sous vide document. So this is fantastic yep. stuff. And then, and then we'll link to that uh, sushi rice acidification. I just sent it to you for the yep. show notes. Awesome. Um, yeah, good good folks up there. And that is the correct way to uh, spell center if uh, you are a, a center uh, in hockey. Uh, there's a left wing, there's a right wing, and then there's the center, R-E. <laughs> um, only if you're playing north of the um, – uh, what's the 49th parallel? Uh, only if only in Canada, Ben. Otherwise, you spell it with uh, E-R uh, if you're an American. Yeah. That's how I spelled it that, yeah. on my side of the border. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> you say that uh, like you're dismissing me. I am. I'm dismissing you. I'm dismissing you a lot. Also, I've been told this weekend that I say the word uh, pasta incorrectly. <laughs> you do. <laughs> Just to be clear, you do. Yeah, it is it's pasta. Good. It's pasta. It's so it's pasta. so posh around here. Yes. So posh. Um, uh, oh, I had some. I had some other stuff. We but we have. Let me get back. Let's get back to the. I'm I'm out of our folder on podcast. Yeah. Feedback. So next 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 bit of feedback is um, from uh, a long long time uh, a listener and often emailer, um, Deep New England, um, who who writes uh, uh, here is a story on New Hampshire Public Radio this morning. Uh, most compelling part at the very end was when they mentioned paid sick leave as a way to support the policy of sick workers staying home, and we'll link to the uh, NPR article. And yeah, I mean. For, for sure. Um, uh, and the title of the article is Food Safety Scares Are Up in 2018. Here's Why You Shouldn't Freak Out. Uh, it's a good article. It came across my desk a couple from a couple of different sources. But um, the main thing is, yeah, I mean, you know, as I've shared before, the more I think about it, um, the, the more I think that it's so important to have sick workers um, not uh, not be handling food. Um, uh, the Deep New England emails us emails back again, saying um, it would be interesting to hear from an owner who has a sick policy and how they overcame the argument that staff will abuse it. Um, that seems to be the argument that I against it that I hear, and I think you're probably right right uh, there, um, um, uh, uh, New England. Um, uh, our health department encourages the use of FDA Form 1B for employees uh, that they must sign that states that they agree to report their illness to the manager. And yeah, I mean that's that's good. But you, I mean, you have to, you know, if if there's no if there's a disincentive, like they'll be fired or they'll get not get paid. Um, you know, policies be damned. They're going to do what they're going to do. Um, but yeah, and then. Um, there's this really good CDC study, uh, food workers working when they are sick, um, uh, mentions several risk factors were not related to whether the workers said they had worked while sick. These factors include restaurant type manager and food, food worker training and paid sick leave. So we'll link to that CDC article as well. Yeah. And, and I, we're going to link to another article that uh, was published late last week um, about um, this also came from CDC. This is different than what you're talking about, mm-hmm. I think, right? Uh, from uh, Wen Yang, Wen Yang, uh, and uh, Molly Steele, Ben Lopman, uh, Juan Leon, and Aaron Hall. And this is uh, the population level impacts of excluding norovirus infected workers, mm. a mathematical modeling mm. study. Um, yeah, this came across my desk w- during my like Twitter storm on Friday from uh, front of the podcast, Bad Bad Bats. Um, and w- his tweet was another reason to have paid sick leave because in their model, um, and I'll, I'll read from the abstract here, but it's supported really well in the in the article. We estimate that over six that six million norovirus cases have been already avoided annually under. Uh, the scenario where people do stay home when they're symptomatic, but an additional 6.7 million more cases may be avoided through 100% compliance with current recommendations, which is to stay home uh, for uh, 48 hours post-symptomatic. Um, wow! Post-symptomatic. Wow! This yeah. is this is this is you know, good good stuff. Thanks to Aaron Hall and 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 his team uh, for this. This is this is great. Yeah, this is a really good right. Like this is one of the ones where. Um, it, in the paid sick leave and and I'll say paid sick leave as well as um, following employee health uh, recommendations, you're often looking at, we're pulling anecdotes, right? A lot of times like, and now all of a sudden let's, let's do something that's more 
uh, robust than anecdotes. Let's do, let's do a model. Um, and <laughs> speaking of models, I, I used your, um, your quote, which you've quoted from someone else that I attributed to you, which is, um, <laughs> all models are wrong. Some are useful. Yep. Uh, it, when talking about weather models related to hurricane Florence last week, uh, at a hockey practice for my kid, when someone was talking about whether we should cancel, um, our hockey activities last, last weekend, which we did, uh, based on models. And, uh, and I said, you know, I, I, I know someone who does a lot of modeling. This is what they said. <laughs> yep, and it's true. It is it's true. It is. Um, so, oh, so anyway. I, and then the, the last thing before we leave uh, that message is that um, Deep New England just finished reading uh, Anthony Bourdain's Kitchen Confidential, and in it he seems to at one point have an appreciation of food safety, but then contradicts himself by writing, you want loyalty from your line cook, someone who wakes up with a scratchy throat and a slight fever and thinks it's okay to call in sick is not what I'm looking for. And so, yeah, I mean, this is, uh, again, we, we've mentioned uh, Kitchen Confidential many times, including probably most recently with uh, Anthony passing, but a uh, great book, a uh, great insight into what's going on in the, the mind of chefs and people that work in restaurants. And so again, uh, highly recommended uh, reading um, uh, if you have not read it or probably uh, you should read it again. Uh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And we, and we talked, we'll, we'll link to the podcast where we talked about um, uh, Tony Bourdain's passing. Um, and, and I very soon, I was, uh, back in June when, when he died very soon after that, I, I gave a talk at AFTO and, um, created a, a new slide that has gone into my slide deck for all my talks, which is a picture of, uh, uh, of Bourdain with a quote that he had, um, from an interview, uh, a few years ago in, I think it was in slate. And his quote is, I've long believed that good food, good eating is all about risk. Whether we're talking about unpasteurized Stilton, raw oysters, or working for organized crime associates, <clears throat> food for me has always been an adventure. And so I, I think that that quote from Kitchen Confidential is very much in line with with his approach. Yep. Right. Which is, um, well, let's have an understanding that there that there are risks, right? Like there there are hazards and, and risk is a thing. And then I, I'm gonna I'm gonna make my own decisions about those risks, uh, and 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 the people that are eating at my restaurant are gonna make their own decisions about it. Uh, so anyway, the yeah, it, but good good call out from from deep New England about uh, some of the. Um, yeah, I, I, contradictory type sta- uh, statements. Well, and I mean, to his point, um, that's great, but I don't know whether anyone in his kitchen has diarrhea, right? Like, I'm right. I'm all for I'm all for uh, managing risk and for personal responsibility, but unless you're going to tell me whether you and your employees are going to answer the question accurately when I walk into your restaurant and I say, "Is anybody working here today have diarrhea?" Right, and right, and right. when was the last time that anybody had diarrhea in the last week? You know, and if I and if I can get an honest answer, then that's fine. But if you're going to hide it from me, then you know you're not. Uh, yeah, that's 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 not playing fair, in my opinion. Yep. So, agreed, agreed. Um, so, I think we got one more, don't we? Oh, we have we've got a bunch more. Um, oh my gosh, there we go. So I, I keep uh, clicking out of my folder. <laughs> It's okay. Um, Back in. So, so here, so here is one um, uh, for for you, I think. Oh yeah. yeah. Um, yep. So, uh, so this is uh, this is from Ian. Uh, please share all details freely. Um, hey guys, love the show. I was doing some. Oh, oh, this sorry. This is the same guy who emailed us about potting yeah. soil, but who asked a follow up question. He says uh, two more questions. 
about Ben's study, and this is this is um, Ben's um, the one where Ben was almost arrested. Um, when you get to the second consent, is there an additional incentive for people to give you their data, or is it purely getting people to understand the need for deception, and then asking kindly for their data? And then when you were talking to the person that, that uh, called the cops, um, did you impress upon that person, based on other research, that he should not be washing his chicken? So any feedback on this? Oh, yeah. Uh, fantastic questions. And, and these are things that, um, that, that, that definitely have come up in our discussions about this, this incident. So uh, first question about second consent. Is there an additional incentive to give data? No. There, there really isn't. The, the idea of that second consent is exactly how um, uh, Deep Soil has has uh, stated it. Um, it's really our, our need to tell them that they were deceived, and if they are don't want to be part of the study because they didn't have all the information, we're really just kindly asking for their data um, at at that point. Um, and and regardless of whether they provide uh, can, that second consent or not. They've already gone through the time, um, and we are going to give them the incentive regardless. Even if they remove their their data from the study, uh, they've already uh, put in the time uh, that, that we've asked them for. Um, so there's no additional incentive. Um, when we When I talked to the individual, I did not overtly talk about the the risks associated washing with washing poultry or, or chicken. What I what I did talk about was that the handling the pathogens that are associated with handling chicken um, would be um, you know drastically more risky and, and hazardous than the non-pathogenic strain of E. coli. Um, it, it, it is not. It's it's this weird line that that we walk. I think as researchers in this situation where we have information, but we don't. It, it's not. Uh, it, it's not the right place or the right time to, in in my estimation, to to provide education to this individual. And it really has to do with that low level of trust and this hostile kind of conversation that we're already having. Yeah. I, I really, yeah, you know what? I, I really don't want to be like, Oh, and by the way, you're, you're risky. Not, not that that's what, what, um, deep soil is sort of suggesting as a tone, but I'm really, really careful. Like, like, like how this conversation is going. I don't really want to, uh, to provoke any more. And, um, when I did talk about the risks associated with handling raw chicken, the individual, and I think I shared this in our in our conversation, but the individual was kind of like, "Yeah, well, I handle raw chicken all the time. I know how to do that, right?" So, so I'm not looking to to combat that conversation with, "Well, yeah, but you shouldn't be washing your your chicken." Although that's the the right message, it's not the right R- time. Wrong time. Yeah, message. exactly. Yeah. Exactly right. Yep. Yep. So yeah, so it's, I mean, these are great. These are great questions, and, and like I said, I, this whole event has been just a learning point. Like I, I, I feel like I, all I want to do is talk about it in, you know, when, when we get invited to go talk to, to places about research and things that we're doing, all I really want to do is talk about this incident. Cause there's so much to it from how, how you plan a study to, to what you, how you do risk communication, that this is exactly the type of stuff that these are the types of questions that I want to share. So, so thanks for asking that, um, deep, deep soil, Ian. 
Okay, very good. Um, and uh, so this is um, uh, from listener Tom. Uh, please share all details freely. There was a question about how to calibrate thermometers. Accurate temperature calibration at cold temperatures is done with a triple point cell. I don't know if you knew this, Ben, uh, but this, in, this is the exact temperature and pressure where liquid, solid, and gas phases of water all exist at the same conditions. There is a setup which maintains this temperature, which is at zero. degrees C. To calibrate at the boiling point of water, uh, you must take into account atmospheric pressure. There are calculators online. It varies a lot with altitude and weather. Chipped ice and water is not bad, especially when shaken in a cocktail shaker, and then pour into a styrofoam cup or use a beaker or chipped ice and water on a magnetic stirrer. This would be a good lesson to have everyone bring a thermometer and see how accurate they are and also to do some statistics. Uh, Getting the three sigma standard deviation within plus or minus one degree C is expensive, and he signs the message, Tom the Engineer. So uh, thanks, Tom. It's always yeah. it's always good to hear from engineers and uh, to get their perspective. Yeah, this is cool, and this is um, I really like this this message because I really I didn't know this at all, right? Like this this was information that um, that I didn't uh, I, I I didn't understand how this all works. So this is, it was cool to look at this and then do a little bit of more diving on my own. So thanks, Tom. Yes, and I'll I'll say too. Um, it's really important to realize that um, microbiologists. Um, are comfortable uh, with uh, plus or minus half a log. So, um, yep. yeah, so that's just uh, my perspective as a microbiologist who likes to, who likes to, to talk with engineers. So, um, but, but thank you. Thank you for that, Tom. Um, it, is, it is good to have all different points of view. And uh, we'll put a link into um, triple point cells. Um, let's see. Oh, you know what? They don't even, you can get these from Fluke, but they don't even have prices. You have to click a button to request a quote. Ooh. So I'm suspecting that they are rather expensive. Um, uh, but the good news is that um, you know uh, if you use that calibrated thermometer to um, measure um, uh, storage of food or cooking of food, um, again, um, microbiologically speaking, um, we're looking at differences of half a log. Um, so probably, you know, yes, getting within three sigma standard deviation plus or minus one degree is going to be expensive, but it probably doesn't need to be that expensive. But I really, I really do, I really do like um, Tom's idea of everybody sort of bringing their thermometers together and then and then doing this um, uh, just to get a sense. I mean, again, this is appealing to the risk assessor in me. Like, like how, like to get sure, sure to get within three sigma standard deviation plus or minus one degree C is going to be expensive. But the question from a risk perspective, which is kind of what I'm getting to with my semi-snarky comments here is like how good does it have to be to to basically um, assure food safety within some you know margin of error or you know risk management um, um, uh, standard so yeah yep good stuff cool good stuff good stuff all right um, um, so we did FOIA yeah we got one more um, and this is um, from um, uh, Deep Grocery or, or Deep Chain. Uh, it says, you can read my message, but not my name. Um, I am a food safety specialist for a national grocery chain. Um, ben may have had to hide from the police in our parking lot. So um, <laughs> this, uh, this person is, uh, is emailing us uh, from their personal email address. Uh, but uh, again, if you put two and two together, go back, listen to that episode, and uh, you can probably figure out who, who this person works for. Um, and this is a great question, and it's especially appropriate uh, these days. Um, so I understand that the temperature chart in the CFP emergency action plans 
2014 Conference for Food Protection Emergency Action Plan for Retail Food Establishments, second edition, page 17, um, and, and we'll, we'll link to that for sure, uh, states that the chart is only to be used for data, is, is, uh, sorry, I think it's a typo in the, in the listener's not message. Used. It's yeah. not supposed to be used uh, for day-to-day operations. It's only to be used for emergencies. If you have good temperature data, could the CFP temperatures be used to determine whether the product should be discarded or not? Um, a few examples. You realize upon arriving that the walk-in cooler went down overnight and you have product temperatures recorded from the night before. Or um, you, cook, you, cook, you took temperatures at 8 a.m. and then at 11 a.m. you notice product temperature is at 50 degrees F in a sales floor cooler. Um, so my um, uh, rather snarky answer is that the bacteria don't care or even know whether it is an emergency. Um, uh, but um, uh, the listener is exactly right that the emergency action plan document does say that the chart should not be used for day-to-day operations and only in emergencies. And the reason why is that the regulatory agencies, this is my speculation, um, the regulatory agencies realized that publishing this document is going to open a door that they didn't, that they do not want opened. And and congratulations, um, uh, Deep Chain, uh, you have opened that door. So um, yes. yeah, it's for sure. From a scientific perspective, you can absolutely make the case that the product would be safe or saleable if you did get the temperatures, um, if you measure the temperatures as you indicated, and then you got it down to uh, the proper temperature within a, a certain period of time. Of course, um, there are regulators out there who might disagree with that perspective. There are probably regulators out there that think that once the food gets to 42 or 43 or 45, even for a fraction of a second, um, the product is unsafe. And this kind of gets back to our the previous discussion on uh, thermometer calibration and um, plus or minus a half a log. So, but I mean, so, and, and what I, the way that I think that we're, we are, well, certainly the way that I'm proceeding is on a case by case basis. I'm working with food companies that have deviations like this all the time. And if they get pushback from the regulators, we run some model predictions and, you know, we make some assumptions and I give them some advice on what I think the appropriate you know, what the predicted growth of the organism is, and they move forward with that. And so, um, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's not easy. Um, and it's a little bit, you know, you're, you're, you're kind of skating on thin ice, pun intended, um, that, that this is, uh, uh, you know, that, 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 I mean, you know, I, I mean, I can defend what I'm saying scientifically, but again, it comes back to, again, such a common theme on this podcast. Risk assessment is what I'm doing. Risk management is what, um, uh, uh deep cheap chain is doing. Right. And so, and then, and then they, they've got to interface with the real world, um, uh, risk managers who, uh, who are, who are the regulatory agencies. So he's managing risk for his operation or, or she, she, they are managing risk for their operation. Um, the, the, um, uh, the regulatory agencies are managing risk from their perspective, and I'm just providing data and, you know, go from there. Yep. Yeah. And this, it opens uh, this uh, proverbial Pandora's box that I think folks are uncomfortable with. And it, um, when I, when I moved to North Carolina in 2008, our regulatory world here had just moved um, from, you know, like focusing on the old style of floors, walls, and ceilings of inspections to risk-based conception, risk-based inspections. And those all, um, 
that all feels really good. Like that's a great idea, but this is where it comes into play where it makes people uncomfortable is, okay, well, are we going to treat, are we going to be risk-based all the time? Um, and, and that becomes a risk management decision. And I think it's one that regulators are increasingly more, uh, comfortable with, but there's still some, some old school kind of feelings around this. And, and we had a discussion about this a couple episodes ago about, um, the changing temperatures in, in North Carolina from, uh, 45 to 41 and how the temperature, the food inherently isn't any safer on January 1st than it was, uh, you know, on December 31st when that change goes into place. Um, but, but it's the, how do we handle it from a regulatory standpoint? Um, so no, I keep, let's keep opening these, these doors. Cause this is where we need to be when it comes to CFP as well, right? Like this is part of, part of our role as, as academics, um, is to, to bring some of this stuff to, to light and, and hopefully change, uh, change how these decisions are made, um, with, with more, with data. So more academics need to be involved in CFP. Yep. Absolutely. Um, so um, there's a couple more things in here that I would like to just briefly touch on if you've got time. I do. Okay. So this is a study that I learned about actually from uh, David Gumpert's uh, blog. Um, and so it's uh, his his blog is uh, – I always forget what it's oh, called. Oh, sorry. Was that audible? Oh, yes. Yes, it was. Okay, good. Okay. I um, want to make sure. So, uh, it's, yeah. So, you know, and wh- whatever. I mean, it's uh, his. Yeah, we, you can do some eye rolling on his blog post, but the the article is actually quite good. So this the, the article it was published in uh, PLOS Current Outbreaks, and uh, the the title of the article is "Recent Trends in Unpasteurized Fluid Milk Outbreaks, Legalization, and Consumption in the United States," and it's from actually from a couple of uh, our colleagues uh, in Canada, uh, in British Columbia, Canada, and basically. Uh, the 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 net uh, bottom line is that according to their the, the calculations done by these authors, the rate of unpasteurized milk associated outbreaks has been declining since 2010 despite increasing legal distribution, controlling for growth in population and consumption. The outbreak rate has effectively decreased by 74 percent since 2005. So um, this is something that we've talked about before on the podcast, but but props to these folks for actually going and doing some research on it and getting it published in the peer-reviewed literature. Yeah, and one of the things I want to highlight though on this, so that the commentary of despite the increase of legal consumption, I would I, I would argue that because of the increase in legal consumption and moving raw milk from the black market to some sort of regulatory uh, world is is also helping, right? Like, I mean, that that was the whole conversation about Amsterdam that we had that led us to to Gumpert in the first place. Was I'm not a proponent of of raw milk. I am a, a proponent of if we have tools to help people make food safer, that we should do that. And in in certain cases where it's become where there are. I think that there are there is infrastructure to manage this in a safe way, and that people get information about risks. Um, you can you can make it safer, and that to me, I don't know, I, I don't know, I, I wouldn't put that line as a direct correlation here, but I, I don't think it is, despite um, the legal consumption. I think that that's a factor here. I think that the fact that you've got in your know, colleagues in South Carolina who who require um, anybody who's selling raw milk to to have 
um, uh, you know, test results for human pathogens, um, that there's a, an inspection process that, that I, I think that helps, right? I think that that's a, it, it, it can only help. Yes, absolutely. So, so again, I just thought this was a nice, a nice take on a, a topic that we had talked about before on the podcast, and I just, I just thought it was, uh, I thought it was good. It is. It's good. Um, so, uh, the next article is something in the the Dropbox uh, entitled "Goats and Daycare Don't Mix," um, uh, and this the the article is is from the um, Knoxville News Sentinel, and it's entitled "Science or Scapegoat: E. coli Outbreak Leaves Daycare Owners Worried, Comma Frustrated." Have you have you been have you read about this? Oh, I have. Do you have I've, thoughts? Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, all right. So let me let me read from uh, from this. Uh, and this is um, about the the goat owner. So there's an there's an outbreak uh, that sickened five kids at Pam Walker's mascot daycare center. Um, and so the outbreak got got uh, identified. It was linked to this. Uh, animal contact was uh, was seen as a as a factor. Um, but uh, Walker, um, uh, you know, the the owner uh, traces the outbreaks beginning to May 25th when a child in the baby house. A separate building for uh, where the staff of her kids' place facility cares for infants and toddlers had diarrhea while at daycare. Following guidelines uh, regulates the child was sent home after two hours or two instances of diarrhea and needed to be diarrhea-free for 17 hours before returning. Um, uh, but what happened next says never happened to her before. The child's mother called on May 31st after the child had returned on May 30th to notify the daycare that she'd learned she'd tested positive for infection with a strain of 0157. Um, the mother picked up the child and Walker frantically called the health department for guidance. They said, calm down and instruct her to give a parent's letter warning to, rep- to look for diarrhea. Um, and so one of the things that, that, that comes out in this, um, in this article is that I, you know, obviously the, the owners of the, um, the daycare, uh, are, um, feel that it, it, bad, right? Like that there's, there's something here that, that they were, they had caused these, um, these ill, these, these illnesses. Um, and then the article goes on to talk about the outbreak a little more and how the health department took samples, took 45 samples. Uh, they looked for, uh, you know, samples from a vacuum bag, carpet sweeper, broom fibers, sandbox, um, dining table, and then also two feces from seven pet goats kept on the property across the road, as, as well as two Grand Pyrenees dogs that stayed with the goat herd. Um, not all the the samples were conducive to growing um, E. coli, but um, four specimens from the daycare showed any E. coli presence, the three samples of goat feces, and one from the two hay samples. So I don't know. I, I get the sense from this this conversation that or this this um, this article that the owners don't they think that it came from the baby and not from the goats and and I think it's pretty clear that it came from the goats. Yeah. Well. Yeah. I mean. And and, and yeah. So and the other thing. So I'm just scanning this article as you talk. Um, over two decades, 500 to 600 children visited the campus, and uh, the owner said, and none of them got sick. As, and my response to that, as far as you know. Yep. <laughs> so. Yeah. Oh, and how? And I mean, 
Pam Walker can't quite but wonder, could the goat paddock have been contaminated by passing wildlife or groundwater or even E. coli somehow carried from the baby house? Right? Like like that it's going back and forth. Uh, yeah, could be. Used, yeah, could, could be. be. Could use to move feces during sample collection and been resting on the baby house's outdoor porch. If we could have taken it from the pasture to the back porch, we could have taken it from the back porch to the pasture. Sure. Um, I mean, Don, it's pretty unlikely. It's like goats. Goats are are pretty clear. Ruminants are pretty clear carriers of a one five seven. This would not be the first outbreak linked to goats. And I, I, I'll be a strong proponent here. I think we can we can have animal interactions, um, and we should be talking about how agriculture works. And we need people to be exposed to this, but we need to also let people know that there's a risk associated with this. And this is this is one of them. This this outbreak, um, uh, to me, highlights that their goats are a factor. Um, it w- doesn't matter what the directionality is, but it's in that it's in that goat herd. It's in their their feces, and it can be moving back and forth. Um, and and I think we have to be, think really carefully about uh, having kids. In these situations, without good hand washing and good cleaning and sanitizing, and good environmental um, uh, precautions, keeping those vectors from moving, moving it back and forth to people. Yeah, and I do, I do feel bad uh, for the this owner. I mean, it, it says uh, again further in the article um, that uh, it's been stressful with continued media coverage, uh, much of which um, the owner characterized as inaccurate, um, saying that some outlets said the children were in the pen with the goats or that the daycare was feeding the children raw milk. Apparently, both of those were not true, but. Um, you know, that's, I'm, that's, that's bad, right? That, that's the, that, 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 those, those, um, mischaracterizations, mischaracterizations should be corrected. But to say just because you're, the kids are not in the pen with the goats or that you're not feeding them raw milk doesn't mean, uh, that you're, uh, that you're risk-free. So. Yeah. Yeah. No, exactly. Um, Hey, so I kind of have a hard out. Oh, okay. Um, yeah. At 12, but. Oh well, that was that was four minutes ago. I know, but it's kind of a it's a it's a semi semi hard out. out. It's a it's like a uh, like a cheddar cheese out because it's <laughs> some, it's like a semi semi hard cheese. Yeah. Uh, so we should go. Should probably go. Um, and uh, we'll do this. We'll do this again. I kind of lost track of time. So oh oh well, um, I'm 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 so I'm so sorry. Uh, but you should go, and uh, I'll take care of the rest. Well, um, well, but we can let, yeah. Oh, we should, oh, you want to, oh, so first we need to end the podcast. Let's end the podcast. Uh, thanks for listening and, uh, check us out on iTunes. Yes. Bye. Bye. Bye.
All right. Sorry. I, uh, I just, I got lost in chatting with you and didn't realize we'd been talking so long. Um, so this one's yours. Yep. Correct. Yep. And, um, okay. So September 17th, how does, how does October 1st look for you? Because we are meeting in person on the second, but we could record a podcast on the first. Oh yeah, let's let's yeah let's 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 do it. Let's record on the first. I am free before one p.m. Okay, I'm free anytime. So okay, well I, why don't we go with let's go with ten again? I okay. like this. It's a good time. Okay, cool. Uh, and I think I sent you everything. Yeah, I think the, you, I think you did too. Yay! Um, we didn't do Canadian food talk but oh shoot we did we'll do two no it's all right because we'll do two on october uh, on october 1st because i'm doing i'm gonna like uh i'm gonna be a correspondent i'm live and from quebec city and i'm gonna get real poutine and <laughs> nice. that's what we're gonna talk about next and then maybe saint hubert as well which is french rotisserie chicken nice yeah so so we're right. good i good i had that plan so good well and, right, I, cool. and there, there there is something in the dropbox that i'm gonna move to the next one which is uh, germs at airports uh because i think it's a it's be a fun study to talk about so perfect Good stuff. All right. right. We'll talk to you later. All right. Bye-bye.